You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. We are facing a biodiversity crisis on planet Earth. The extinction rate is now around a thousand times the natural rate. Nearly half of the world's forests have been chopped down by humans, and every decade we lose an area of the tropical rainforest the size of Portugal. This matters because we rely on nature to clean our air and water for our materials, foods and medicines. Healthy forests suck up and store our carbon dioxide emissions and are key in the fight against climate change. The transition to sustainable food production has never been more urgently needed and some companies are ploughing ahead. With me to discuss this topic is Adrienne Portefeuille, Partner and Associate Director of Sustainability at Boston Consulting Group. So Adrienne, why should corporations get involved in the fight to restore biodiversity? Well, because the biodiversity crisis is a business crisis. The erosion of biodiversity is actually driven by our economic activity and notably by the production of goods and services, which makes up 90% of the pressure. For companies, it's a significant risk, but it's also a significant business opportunity. And if we look at the different value chains, all key value chains are exerting pressure on nature, but food is by far exerting the most pressure. It's interesting because when we talk about climate, it's only one of several important sectors. But when we look at the overall impact on nature, it comes on top with more than 50% of the pressure. It's notably happening through land use change. Think deforestation for agri-commodities like palm oil, soy, and beef, and the exploitation of natural resources. Think fisheries and overfishing in many oceans. It's largely happening upstream in the supply chain of large food companies in places that are far away from their home markets, which makes it particularly difficult to tackle. Biodiversity loss has been ongoing for the past century, perhaps longer in Europe, but particularly now in Asia and Africa, led by international companies. But it feels like there is a change. Corporations are waking up to this crisis and trying to do something about it. Have you noticed a switch in motivation Yes, we definitely have. In fact, at BCG, we're increasingly being asked to work on sustainability strategies for corporates. And those strategies, they're not on the side. They're not philanthropic. They're actually more and more embedded in the business strategy of those companies. They're really looking at what are the things in our core business that are either causing the degradation of ecosystems around us or that we can do more of because they can have a positive impact on ecosystems. And companies can do that in two ways. Number one, they can look at the impact of their operations footprint and that of their suppliers and see how they can improve them. For example, if I'm using significant amounts of water in a water-scarce area, which is worsening local communities' plight, let's be more water efficient or even see how we can coordinate water demand better so that collectively we use water in a more sustainable and resilient way. 
or they can look at the potential impact of their products and services on the environment. So for example, let's use our unique manufacturing and marketing capabilities to convince people to eat nature-positive food that is also delicious and healthy. Both are necessary, but the second is where we see companies really being a positive force at scale because they will fix problems while generating a return. What is driving this new interest from corporations? Well, it's their stakeholders, actually. If you look at the investors, for example, let's take the PE fund who is acquiring a company this year. Now, if you look at the trends, sustainability is going to be a driver of profitability in the 2020s and of transformation. So they are starting to realize that in 2025 and 2030, they need to have a story to tell that fits that new context. If we look at consumers, they're increasingly expecting transparency on the products that they buy. They want to see what positive and negative impacts they're having on the world. In fact, during the COVID crisis, we actually administered a global survey to look at customers' perception. And we realized that both in developed and emerging markets, people reported that they were much more concerned about the erosion of nature and that they had a much better understanding of how their lifestyle is driving the erosion of nature. Those customers are also employees, and the new generation is increasingly looking for meaningful and purposeful jobs. And finally, we have the regulator. If we look at, for example, EU regulation, the green taxonomy is coming online this year. It forces all companies to report their activities according to whether they're green or brown. It currently focuses on greenhouse gas emissions, but it'll be expanded to other environmental topics in 2023. That will give great transparency to both customers and investors. Another example is the Farm to Fork Directive. It's requesting that farmers reduce pesticide use by 50% in 2030. That's actually very soon. If it's well managed, it can help us switch to new and better practices that'll be more resilient and more productive. But if not, it could really reduce the productivity and output and put farmers in a challenging economic situation. Interest in preserving biodiversity through sustainable agriculture and better farming techniques has been growing in recent years. Here's Alison Taylor, Chief Sustainability Officer at ADM, to share the progress they've made. We are known as an ingredient provider, ingredients to foods, ingredients to fuels. We do not own farms, so we are the bridge between the farmer and a consumer-facing company, for instance. So we influence farmers, we talk to farmers, we work with farmers, we buy their crops, we buy their materials, we buy the ingredients from them, typically. We process those ingredients, sometimes into meal or oil or something even more refined, like flavors. And we also transport around the world. So we pick up raw materials and we transport them to processing. We process them. We may be transporting them by, you know, overland or by sea to a distribution point. We also are a, a company that does a lot of innovation in the agriculture space. So we probably know how to make almost anything out of an agricultural product <laughs> or a component of it. So obviously agriculture underpins everything because if we can't eat, we can't do anything else. But agriculture is also responsible for enormous amounts of biodiversity loss. What is ADM doing about this? Well, first of all, agriculture and biodiversity are intrinsically related. And you talk to a farmer and they're probably much more eloquent than anyone in describing that because farmers are very, very aware of subtle changes in land the land use of neighboring properties, certainly in weather patterns, subtle as they may be, or certainly extreme weather events. Availability of water. <laughs> Sometimes we say we move water around the world. 
that's a lot of what we are doing, in fact, because that's so essential. And that's actually something so fundamental, which very few of us realize. Yes. Well, it's certainly embedded in every agricultural product and essential to every agricultural crop, right? And so where there is any kind of conservation of water, stewardship of water, reuse cleaning water or conserving water, clearly that's really integral to what we would talk about when we talk about biodiversity. And it's something that farmers have been doing for many years in many different ways, as well as preserving the landscape and the ways in which they are tilling their farms and the inputs that they're using. Resilience is a word that we use a lot now, particularly in the climate context, but a biodiverse farm is a resilient farm, is one that is much more likely to withstand extreme weather conditions and changes. And so there's solid economics behind preservation of biodiversity. We often think of that in terms of preserving the livelihood of farmers and certainly preserving the backbone of our business. But I think there's also a recognition now in the marketplace and in our consumers that are becoming more and more aware of these issues that they want to know that companies share their values. They want to know that companies are acting responsibly, understand what biodiversity is. And many companies have more stake in that than others. I think we have a tremendous stake in that, obviously. So they want to know more about what we're doing. So there may actually be some competitive advantage as well in terms of a business case to companies that can talk about and credibly show the importance of these issues and what they're doing. How does a big, huge global company like ADM address biodiversity, which is quite often caused by small family businesses cutting down a little sector because they want to get the immediate profit without looking ahead? Let's look at soy as an example. So in a place like Brazil, where we have beautiful biodiversity, we have the Amazon, but outside of the Amazon, beautiful biodiversity, at the same time, a strong agricultural economy and a need to support those farmers, big and small. So we're actually really encouraged by technology developments. And I would say there's been a real game changer for us. So trying to learn from such a vast area, what are farmers actually doing on their farms? When we aren't owning them, we don't have the ability to say, we will change the practice on the farm because we own the farm. We don't own the farm. So how do we know what to talk to a farmer about and how to talk to a farmer? Well, in terms of our longstanding relationships with farmers, that we know. We have dialogue. We have conversation. We're a trusted advisor and partner oftentimes. We're going to be buying their crops. They care about what we say. And so how do we utilize that relationship and how do we expand that to influencing certain practices on the farm? So we can talk to farmers about cover crops, no-till, inputs that are more environmentally sensitive. We can talk about water conservation. We can connect them to others to share best practices. What is the reaction from farmers? How does that feedback mechanism work? The feedback has been very positive, and in fact, I think that's something that we've learned is really valuable. Providing information, not just maybe this or maybe that, but actually providing information. They can also share that with their neighbors. And it's inspiring, of course, to see an outcome. Farmers need to feel confident in this process because it's not just enough to stop destroying. We also have to keep building. Right, Adrienne? To deliver both, there's one more level that is absolutely necessary, and that's influencing the broader stakeholder group in those regions. 
For example, avoiding deforestation around and within the farm is not going to really move the needle if your neighbor is going to go and cut the trees that you refuse to cut. So you need to have an organization where you put all the stakeholders around the table and discuss how we're going to drive collective action and improve the rules of the game. So that for farmers, for local communities, for local authorities, the forests that are standing are worth more than the forests that are cut down. Ensuring everyone's voice is heard when decisions are being made is so important. Because inclusion, having a stake in our joint future, is one way, besides financial gains, that we motivate ourselves to work together. Alison, how does it feel to know that you're a pretty integral part of the path that we're taking? There's fascinating technology developments, artificial intelligence, et cetera, that's being deployed. And it's just a really exciting area to watch and to be a part of. Data collection and showing that data, that has been a really important tool for us. So farm equipment is sophisticated in data collection. Satellite technology is another tool that has been very important for us, and especially in really big areas like Brazil. That's how we can see, even from a computer in an office, uploading satellite images and overlaying farm boundaries, we can see the farms from whom we're purchasing and what their practices are on the ground. And that's becoming more and more specific and more and more granular. And so if we see something that looks like it may be deforestation, we can engage with that farmer. But at the same time, farmers are so much more sophisticated about these practices and they have data available to them. So we're not really engaging about something that isn't a partnership between us, that we're not aware that we have a mutual goal to be stewards to the land. So when we decided to say we were going to be fully traceable in South America by 2022, which means we will know the first point of origin of our supply chains in Brazil and Paraguay and Argentina. This is the tool that enables us to do that. We're able to see through our purchasing records, but also from what's happening in satellite imagery, what's happening on farms and where we're sourcing from to monitor our supply chain in that way and to have those dialogues and those engagements where we need to. So technology has been a really important tool for us in maintaining that essential aspect of biodiversity, maintaining forests and healthy forests and healthy landscapes. I think it's fascinating that we've moved over centuries from this intimate relationship we had between the farm and the fork to this globalised situation where we have really no idea where anything comes from and how it's made. And now through technology and through these interpersonal relationships, you're managing to bring us back to that relationship that we once had. And I think it's only for the good. And of course, it also helps us know and helps us to be able to calculate exactly how much carbon is being stored, how much water is being lost, all these really valuable molecules globally. Yes. So... There are different methodologies for these calculations. Water, as it trickles through soils and runs off of land, is not as easy to measure as if you had a collection point, you know, under a spigot. So we have to use some assumptions. We have to use methodologies that help us to compare apples to apples. And again, that's an important part of transparency in what we are reporting. When we report greenhouse gas emissions, we use something called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, pretty well internationally recognized. That number that we put out there is a number that other companies are also calculating using the same methodology. 
But I have to say in sustainability, there's still a lack of standards and clear methodologies in some areas. And so there's a lot of work to be done to make those methodologies a little more standardized. So we need more standardization, really. What would you say to a smaller company that's considering reducing activities that are harming biodiversity, but isn't sure they can afford it? I would say, remember that progress is important and don't be discouraged by the fact that you may not tackle biodiversity globally overnight or even in the trajectory of your leadership's tenure. Be long-term focused, but set milestones to demonstrate measurable progress on a shorter-term basis. And think of every aspirational goal in that way. We can be paralyzed by these huge issues and these huge challenges, especially globally, and maybe do nothing. But it doesn't really matter the size of your entity, and individuals can do a tremendous amount by putting pollinator habitats on their balconies or in their backyards. These things make a difference. We're setting up a migratory bird pathway with rice farms in California. These are not huge swaths of land, and they're wetlands as well, but this will make a big difference. Something that you can do, that you can grasp, that you can measure, is going to make a difference. Don't wait until you think you can do everything because every little bit counts. While existing companies make the transition to sustainability, there's a whole new suite of food companies that's tackling biodiversity degradation in innovative new ways and at scale. Pat Brown, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods, discusses moving away from industrialized meat production as a path forward. Impossible Foods is pioneering a way around this. Tell me about it. The use of animals as a food technology is by far the most destructive technology in human history. We're in a very advanced stage of a total collapse of biodiversity, and it's almost entirely due to our use of animals as food technology. For terrestrial species, it's habitat destruction and degradation due to the massive land footprint of animal agriculture combined with climate change, and we'll get to the role of animal agriculture in that. And for aquatic species, it's almost entirely overfishing. And I realized that there was an enormous opportunity to actually turn back the clock on climate change by replacing the use of animals for food. There's an awareness of the ongoing greenhouse gas costs of animal agriculture, which is about 16 to 17% of ongoing greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, that's plenty big enough of a problem. If we could replace animals in the food system and just suspend disbelief about how and whether that will happen, by doing so, we could create effectively a 30-year pause in the rise of greenhouse gas, atmospheric greenhouse gases. We would effectively, by just doing that one thing, even if we did nothing about fossil fuels or anything else, we would create a 30-year pause starting in 2030 where there would be no net rise in greenhouse gases. So let's talk about a world where we reduced by three quarters the livestock that we use. What could that land be used for in a different way? Let's talk about an alternative vision for the planet. Well, the first order of business is the animal agriculture is incompatible with nature. And a figure that I think sort of helps you understand the degree to which that's true is that 
domestic cattle on Earth today outweigh all remaining wild terrestrial vertebrates. I mean, every mammal, bird, reptile, and amphibian left on Earth altogether, the cows outweigh them by more than a factor of 10. So we've essentially completely replaced nature with cows on land. Another metric for understanding this is that based on FAO data on global meat consumption, if you look at the total mass of meat consumed every year, it's six times greater than the total remaining biomass of wild terrestrial vertebrates. What that means is if we were to hunt for our meat, there wouldn't be so much as a sparrow or a shrew left on Earth in two months. So we've basically turned the biosphere into a factory to feed ourselves. This is not just agriculture overall. Animal agriculture specifically is considerably more than 80% of the entire land footprint of humanity. And just for context, if you took every city on Earth and all the infrastructure that went with it and summed up the entire land area, that's less than 1% of the land surface of Earth. Okay, People are thinking, oh, the cities are encroaching on nature. Completely wrong. It's animal agriculture that's eating up nature. The cities are a minuscule fraction of that. Why do we like meat so much? Why we like the taste of meat is a very complicated question, but obviously it's something that we've been very interested at Impossible Foods. And from the purely sensory standpoint, we've understood a lot about the underlying biochemistry just from our research over the past decade or so. And we could have a long conversation about that, but to put in a nutshell, one of the things that we discovered early on at Impossible Foods is that the magic ingredient that makes the flavor of meat unlike anything from the plant world is a molecule called heme. And heme is a completely ubiquitous molecule on Earth. It's found in every living cell on Earth, whether plant, animal, bacterial, whatever. They all require heme as an essential component of an energy-generating system. And heme is most familiar to you as the iron-containing molecule that carries oxygen in your blood, makes your blood red, and is also responsible for the pink or red color of meat. But what hadn't been realized is that heme is the catalyst for all the unique chemistry that separates the flavor of meat from the flavor of any plant-based product. When you cook meat, you get this explosion of new chemistry happening, just unlocked by the cooking process, just a very complex set of chemical reactions that transform the simple nutrients that are in raw meat, which are just pretty much the same things that you'd find in plants, except for the high amount of heme amino acids, sugars, vitamins, and stuff like that, into hundreds of new molecules produced by that chemistry that you experience as the flavor of meat. And it turns out that the catalyst, the magic ingredient, is heme. So that's something that we discovered. And that was a very important discovery because basically what it meant is we can make meat that tastes like meat, whether it's raw, it tastes like raw meat. When it's cooked, it tastes like cooked meat. You can cook it rare, you can cook it well done. And we don't put fake flavor in it. We use the magic of heme to take, again, these simple nutrients that you can get from any plant source, amino acids, vitamins, stuff like that, into meat flavor. In fact, you could take a bowl of vegetable broth, and we've actually done this just for the heck of it, and put heme into it, and it tastes like beef broth. So that's really incredible what you've developed with biotechnology. Basically, you've taken a soy protein and used a yeast that's been genetically modified to produce this heme, and that could transform the entire food system. How have people reacted to your products? Definitely the awareness is growing, but our whole principle was we can't depend on people deliberately wanting to choose our product because they care about the planet, because that's just not going to get the job done. 
we have to make it as delicious or more delicious than the animal version, healthier, and when we get to full-scale production, cheaper than the animal product. And then people will buy it whether they care about climate change or not. Shifting an entire industry towards change in order to protect our environment is no small task. Adrian, what does that look like outside of meat? While meat is changing fast, there's a number of other crops that are also changing. There's notably a number of crops that are causing significant deforestation. Soy, palm oil, pulp and paper, alongside cocoa and coffee, they represent a majority of the deforestation globally. They also cause soil degradation and water and air pollution on a vast scale due to the intensive use of fertilizers and pesticides. There's a number of innovations that are coming out that are enabling the reduction in the use of those pesticides. For example, there's a very exciting startup in France called Carbon B. Carbon B uses cameras and algorithms to do image recognition of weeds on the field so that it can really target the pesticides. That enables a reduction of the use of pesticide between 60 and 90%. So it's great for the environment, but it's also great for the bottom line. Cost reduction is one thing. In this case, you use less pesticides. The other thing is that it's an opportunity to drive price premiums for companies. It means that they're able to sell products that have features that are more and more critical to consumers, and therefore, there's increasing willingness to pay. Reduction is one way to make a change. For Pat, at Impossible Foods, this means a hugely ambitious plan to make the meat industry extinct. Our mission from the start, the goal has been to completely replace the industrial scale animal ag industry by 2035. So we've got 14 years left. I'm highly confident that we'll do it. Are you pleased to see so many competitors? It makes me happy that there are a lot more companies trying to get into making meat without using animals. And the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned, the size of the market is going to be worth $3 trillion in 10 years. And so there's plenty for a lot of people. Across consumers and companies, a desire to protect the environment while still keeping both the foods and ingredients we rely on as viable as possible seems to be growing. Adrian, why is it that companies should start acting now? Companies need to act now because it's a business opportunity for first movers and a risk for other players in the market. It's an opportunity for three reasons. One, it helps companies build stronger trust and loyalty with customers. Two, it's an opportunity to source products at the right price before biodiversity products become a scarce resource as market demands them and suppliers scramble to transform in order to provide them. And finally, it's an opportunity to transition to regenerative agriculture, which is going to be more productive and more resilient. Now, companies need help to deliver this at scale. They need three things, commonly agreed metrics, clear targets, and governance that rewards responsible players and not harmful behavior. The good news is that we're making progress. On the metrics side, non-financial reporting is still not standardized the way that financial reporting has been for 100 years. But various standard setters are working on alignment, and the G20 in Rome earlier this summer provided support to a global reporting standard. On targets, the SBTI approach, which pioneered science-based targets for companies that are aligned to the 1.5 degrees Celsius, is being replicated by SBTN on other environmental issues, water, deforestation, etc. And finally, on conducive governance, we're seeing alignment between the private and public stakeholders. We recently worked on a manifesto with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and WWF as calling for global governance on plastic waste. We wondered whether companies would sign our manifesto since that might be perceived as adding red tape and constraints. But very quickly, all the big names were knocking on our door, asking whether they could sign. 
It turns out they wanted clarity on what success looks like so that they can start investing for the long term and a level playing field where companies that take action are rewarded rather than those that cut corners. While it's taking a while, we think it's moving in the right direction. A more sustainable way of producing our food, a way that doesn't destroy the natural world that we love and rely on, is starting to be taken seriously. There's a lot of money riding on it, and it is truly a global endeavour. The transformation of our food systems could not be more exciting and essential. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Next time, we'll discuss the intersectional nature of climate, environmental issues and gender equity among the very brands that you might see every day in your local stores. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.